coming home for me, and uh, I pastored for years up in Grapevine, and so I have always had a lot of respect for Calvary Bible Church as a like-minded church. I've gotten to interact with Pastor Dan on a number of occasions, and so it really is a privilege to get to actually be here in the flesh. Thank you for the invitation. Um, though I'm flying solo on this trip, I do bring you greetings from my wife Heather and our five children, Caroline, Emmett, Macaria, Moses, and Randall. Um, you know, one of my children was born in California when I was in seminary. The last one was born in India when we lived there, and three were from Texas, so we had this very multicultural family. And um, they didn't mind missing the 16-hour flight, but they did uh, get pretty jealous when I showed them a picture of the barbecue that I had yesterday. Uh, as you saw in the video, Dubai has become a really incredible place for gospel advance. It's become a very strategic city, an incredibly fast-growing city. Uh, we're in the second year of our pastoral training center. We've had more than 200 students take at least one of our classes. We have 30 students in the two cohorts of really serious students that are training to plant churches and to pastor churches. And so in the least reached part of the world, the gospel is going forward. Be encouraged by that tonight. We would love to have you keeping up with what we're doing, following the work. We've got some prayer cards where you can see this attractive photo of the Zeller family. Grab one of these for yourself off the table in there. Sign up for our email list. We would love to keep you up to date on the latest prayer requests and the latest missionary stories from Dubai. Uh, well, speaking of missionary stories, uh, let, why don't you turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 13. We want to look at Acts 13 together tonight. And this is a missionary story because at the beginning of Acts 13, the Antioch church is commissioning Saul and Barnabas and sending them out on what becomes known as the first missionary journey. Saul and Barnabas, they travel first to Cyprus. They preach the gospel in Cyprus and they encounter some opposition and then they move on. And one of their next stops is this town called Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch is a significant city. It's a good-sized city. It was a, a regional hub. A lot of commerce and trade happened there. It was important politically. And so they start preaching the gospel there in that city. Uh, Paul's first sermon is in the synagogue. They go to the synagogue. He opens up the Word of God, starts preaching. Uh, Paul preaches the gospel. This is actually his longest sermon of Paul recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, some people respond in faith. Some are begging to hear more. And, and what happens is after he preaches this one Sabbath, the message basically goes viral because he preaches a sermon. A week passes. And the next week, he's going to speak again. And, and look what it says here. Look at verse 44. It says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So the gospel gone out and people said, we want to hear this message. And so look what it, look, look, let's re read what happens here. Let's, let's read starting in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's why we're here this weekend, right? That's why we're here on a Friday night, gathered together. It's because we all share a commitment to this, to what Paul is saying right here. We all share this commitment 
to seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. The gospel urgency. The reality of the world today is that billions of people live their lives worshiping something other than the biblical God. Billions of people are worshiping everything from statues of elephants to uh, Muhammad to material possessions to every manner of false religion. Mankind is worshiping something. Billions of people are lost in their sins. Billions of people are facing God's wrath. Billions are without salvation. The region where my family lives, it needs salvation. That's why we're there. That's why we, that's why we live in Dubai. As Brent was saying, Dubai is right there in the middle of the 1040 window. That's what missiologists call the, the area on the map. If you draw a line between 10 degrees and 40 degrees uh, latitude from North Africa, moving across the Middle East into South Asia, that's where 90% of the unreached peoples in the world live. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, Jains who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when we think about salvation going to the ends of the earth, what about here? What about gospel urgency right here in Fort Worth? From Paul's perspective, America would certainly qualify at the ends of the earth, would it not? I think it would. The reality is that people right here in North Texas need salvation. The population of the DFW Metroplex these days is about 7 million people the fourth most populous metropolitan area in the country. Did you know, I, I looked this up, I looked up the, the religious statistics, of those 7 million people in Dallas-Fort Worth, about half of them, right about half, claim no religious affiliation at all. Half are totally non-religious of the half that claim religion. Of course, there are many Roman Catholics, a growing number of Muslims, there are Hindus, there are people from all sorts of different cults. And so about one-third of the total people in this area claim to be Protestants of some kind, okay? whether that's Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or Pentecostal, whatever it is. Of course, here in the Bible Bet, you've met a lot of people who claim to be churchgoers or have some affiliation to a church, but they don't know the gospel themselves. They're, they don't go to the church. They don't hear the word of God. So surely the number of genuine believers is much lower than that one-third, right? But let's just go by profession. One One-third of the people here in this area are professing believers of some kind. You know what that means? That means at least two-thirds of the people around you, at least two out of every three people in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces and in the, the grocery store and the Walmart and all those places, two-thirds don't believe the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That means within a short drive of you, there live nearly five million people who are in desperate need of salvation. And that's here in the Bible Belt. Of course, this region of Pisidian Antioch needed salvation in, in 1348 and 49. Look at the results of Paul's ministry there. Look at the results of Paul's ministry. It says, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Paul's ministry was a ministry that resulted in salvation spreading. Don't we want that? Don't we desire to see salvation spread? Don't we desire to see the gospel spread into every nook and cranny of this city, every every crevice of our neighborhoods. We want to see the gospel spread everywhere, right? Are we on the same page with that? Are you shouting? Uh, what, what's the word? Amine? Woo! Right? It's in your it's in your hearts, if not in your voice, because we're not that kind of church. Sorry about that, Shannon. 
we're, we're working on it. We're working on it. Here's my concern. This is a concern that applies to us and our church in the UAE. It applies here equally. That even among people like us, people who agree that the gospel is true, people who agree that the world is lost and that we are called to make disciples, we can get to a place where spreading salvation is something that we, that we affirm as a desire, but we are not gripped by as a passion. We are not devoted to as our preoccupation. And so, as we actually live our lives, days go by, and weeks go by, and months go by, and we're having our services, and we're singing our songs, and we're doing our Bible studies, but not much salvation is spreading. There's this little slice of internet culture. I don't know if you guys are big, uh, you know, worldwide web users around here, but but the young people these days, so they tell me they send these memes out there, okay? If you know what a meme is, you're doing better than some. And so what you'll have is you'll have this picture, and so, and so this meme is called You Had One Job. Have you seen that? And so you'll have this picture that indicates that somebody has, has messed up on the job. So maybe you'll have a picture of a road sign, and the sign says turn left, but there's an arrow pointing to the right. And then you'll have, you know, font, you know, the, the white font, you had one job. You didn't get the arrow pointing in the right direction. There's another one that has a store display of butcher knives, and the sign says, back to school special. Okay, that's not good. You messed up that display. You had one job. But see, this is a little bit mean-spirited, because the reality is, hey, jobs are difficult. Most of us do have more than one responsibility. We have more than one thing we need to think about in our lives. But the, the point being made there is that while they may have done some of the peripheral things right, they may have made a nice display or they may have made a nice painting, they missed the point of the whole thing. They, they didn't step back from it and see what was the main thing they were supposed to accomplish. The person who does that needs to have a wake-up call. They need to have the clarity brought to their thinking. They need to be reprioritized. And I think that kind of reprioritization is what Paul is offering to us in 1347. I want to focus on verse 47. Look at this verse, verse 47. This is an incredible verse because in this verse, Paul is explaining exactly why he does what he does. Paul is telling us when questioned, he, he's saying, here's what drives me. Here's the basis for why I do what I do in preaching the gospel. Because the, the Jewish leaders here, they've rejected Paul's teaching about the gospel. And Paul says, okay. I'm going to start preaching to the Gentiles. Now, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us, most of us being Gentiles, but, it, but in that world, it's one thing for Paul, as, as a Jewish leader, as a trained rabbi, it's one thing for him to reason with other Jews. They were his people. They were, they were like him. They'd been trained in the same way. They'd been taught the same things. They, they thought along the same lines. It's one thing for him to be around them. That's the culturally comfortable place to go. Go to Gentiles. They were different. They were strange. They were uncomfortable. They were unclean. Those people don't deserve the message. Those people don't deserve any grace. You shouldn't even be around them long enough to have a conversation with them, much less share any truth with the Gentiles. But Paul says, no, I'm bringing the gospel to them. And 1347 captures for us the reasoning for this decision. This is what he's thinking when he does that. And in this explanation, we get this unique window into Paul's thinking, and it's giving us the, the motivation and the priority 
of one who would spread salvation. And if Calvary Bible Church is going to see this region and this world transformed for Christ, if Calvary Bible Church is going to be a church from which the Word of God is continually spreading, I believe that, that you and, and us, that we individually and corporately need to remember, to deepen our convictions about and to organize around Paul's priorities as we see in this verse. What I want to do in the time we have is look at verse 47. And it's really simple. I want to work my way backwards through this verse. Okay, we'll start at the end and we'll come back to the beginning to see Paul's thought order. And we're going to see three priorities for spreading salvation. Three priorities. And the first priority has come up already, but let's state it explicitly. So number one, number one priority is know God's mission. Know God's mission. Look at the end of the verse. It says that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And to see how this works in the structure of the verse, he says, so the Lord has commanded us. And you say, okay, well, what's the command? He says, I've made you a light for the Gentiles. Okay, why? Why is that? And it says that. So you see that or so that it's a purpose clause. He's saying this is what we're all building up to. Here's the purpose. Here's the reason for all of it. It's that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In those few words... We see the agenda of God. The agenda of God is salvation. We also see the scope of that agenda, and the scope of God's agenda is global. It's to the ends of the earth. It's even more clear in the Old Testament passage that Paul is quoting. Isaiah 49.6, it says, that my salvation may reach, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This verse is calling you and calling me to a life and to a mission it's fundamentally rooted in the character of the God that we serve. God, our God, the God we worship, the God we sing to, our God is a saving God. We see this part of God's character celebrated throughout the Bible. You can look at the Old Testament in verses like Psalm 62.6. says, He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. Like a 7-7, it says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Or Isaiah 45:21. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. God is a Savior. And as Paul is preaching this sermon in Pisidian Antioch, the sermon he already preached the week before, he's emphasizing to the people that they need to know that God is a Savior. That this mission to save is not just something that's like there somewhere on God's to-do list among some other things. But saving is part of God's fundamental nature. And so if you looked at this sermon, then we can't go through the whole thing tonight, but, but in verse 17, Paul was unfolding how God chose Israel, that they're his, his chosen people. It describes his faithfulness to those people throughout their history, despite their unfaithfulness. And then look at verse 23. He's connecting how God keeps providing for Israel with how he sent Jesus as Savior. Look at verse 23. Of this man, he's been talking about David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. It's kind of a surprise in the sermon. He's been saying God's faithful to Israel. And he says, but then God sent a Savior. He sent Jesus. See, the Jews didn't think they needed salvation. They thought they already were saved. They thought they already were God's people. And he said, but no, no, no. This salvation God sent, it's for you. Look at verse 26. It says, brothers, 
sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. He's saying we need this. We, God's people, we the Jews, we need salvation. We need this Jesus. We need this Savior. And then Paul shows how Jesus saves. He preaches his resurrection, his crucifixion, his, his, his appearances, his substitution. Paul's saying that, that this God, throughout history, this God has cared for his people. This God has been faithful to his people. And he saved them again, and saved them again, and saved them again, and saved them again. And now, in sending Christ, he's done it yet again. At the moment of our greatest need, God has made the greatest provision. That's our saving God. And so throughout the book of Acts, as they would, as the apostles would stand before people and preach the gospel, what did they proclaim? They proclaimed that God saves in Christ. So in Acts 4.12, Peter is standing before the people and he says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. And so Paul is preaching Jesus. He's defending his teaching about Jesus from Scripture. He's calling them to respond in belief and repentance. God is a saving God. God wants to deliver those who are lost in darkness. God wants to deliver those who are in sin. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came as an expression of God's saving character. And throughout Scripture... We can look back in Scripture and see how God saves. But we can also look back in Scripture and see that throughout Scripture, God never intended for His salvation to be limited to only one people or one place. Rather, God's saving ambition is global. So Jesus' last words to His disciples after the Great Commission, which we've already studied tonight, His last words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 were, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There it is again, the end of the earth. The geographical extreme. The farthest place, the place that you cannot go away farther than. He's saying God wants to go there. God wants His salvation to go to that place, to the end of the earth. We get to Acts chapter 13. Twelve years have passed since Jesus said those words. Twelve years have gone by since Jesus ascended back into heaven. The gospel during that time, the gospel has been proclaimed in Jerusalem. It's been proclaimed in Judea. It's been proclaimed in Samaria. Salvation has gone forward from Jew to God-fearer to Gentile. But here's Paul and he's saying, there's still places the gospel hasn't gone. There's still places the gospel needs to go. And Acts 13 is this turning point in the story of Acts. It's this point, this, this moment where the focus turns out from Israel and turns towards taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul's saying the, the gospel has to go out. The gospel has to spread further. Get Paul's mindset here. Paul is on a mission because God is on a mission. Paul is proclaiming salvation because God's nature is to save. Paul's commitment to mission is rooted in the fact that he serves a God who wants to save and wants to save to the end of the earth. Let's know that, brothers and sisters. Let's know that. Let's know the mission of God. Let's know that our God is a global God. Let's know that our God is a saving God. Let's know that He's the Savior of the world. Let's know that all peoples belong to Him, that He wants them to know Him. Let's know that. Let's remember that. Let's be driven by that. 
Because God's great missional purpose for His world isn't finished yet. That's why CBC has a missions conference. That's why we're talking about gospel urgency. That's why we support you know, works in Uganda and places like that. That's why you're interested in what's going on in Dubai and places like that. These priorities, these gatherings, these topics, they're reflecting a certain view of God. Your commitment to mission says a lot about your view of God, a church that is rightly and biblically in awe of this incredible God who saves is a church that says, let's spread salvation to the ends of the earth. But since God desires His salvation to spread to the ends of the earth, which means everywhere, a question we should be asking, a question you should be asking, is the question, where hasn't salvation spread yet? Where isn't God's salvation right now? And I just wonder, I wonder about your own lives, your own families, your own jobs, your own neighborhood. I just wonder if I hung out with you and I, I followed you around and I sort of like got the drone's eye view of your weekly routine, where would I see that end of the earth mentality at work? Where would I see that gospel spreading mentality at work? Because the question is, where are you Where are you seeing a lack of gospel? Where are you seeing a lack of salvation? And what are you doing about that? Think about your grass. You take care of your grass, don't you? You know, this time of year, it's all kind of like questionable. But during, you know, the better part of the year, you want to take good care of your grass. And, you know, we all wish that we had this just kind of beautiful, uh, green, manicured, golf course kind of grass. That would be nice, right, if we had that kind of grass. But what often happens is that in most of our yards, we have we some of it's pretty nice, some of it's pretty green, but then alongside those nice green areas, there's these other areas where it's kind of dead. It's kind of brown. It's not looking so good over in that, that back corner of the yard, right? Have you ever had that happen? And, and people who care about their yard, they notice that, and what, and what they do is they don't, they don't notice this brown spot. They don't say, oh, oh, it's brown over there. I, I don't think we'll go over there. Let's just be in this green part of the yard and, and let's just stay over here. You know, people who care about their yard see that brown area and they say, let's do something about that. Let's figure that out. What's it going to take to get the green over here? Let's, let's bring some more water over there or maybe we need to bring less water over there. Let's get some fertilizer. Let's, let's figure out the sunshine. Let's figure out how are we going to get the, the green grass over here? What are we going to do about this brown spot? That's what you think about your yard. And this text is calling you to look at your community that way. To look at your life that way and to say, where are those patches of darkness? Where are those patches where the gospel isn't? And what's it going to take to get the light in there? What's it going to take to get the gospel in there? Brothers and sisters, where in this community is the gospel missing? What kinds of sacrifices, what kinds of life changes are going to have to be made to get the gospel in there, and who's going to do that if not you? It may be that that seeing what this verse is telling us about God's mission, it could be a call for us to to, to ratchet up, to say, we need more gospel urgency here. We don't have enough right now. It's not urgent enough. People are dying. People are being lost. People are, are going their own way without Christ. We need more urgency. We need to ratchet up that missional initiative. We just see where the gospel needs to spread. Maybe that's a certain neighborhood. 
Maybe that's immigrants from a certain country. Maybe that's people who work at a certain store or people or students at a particular school, but it's recognizing this is a place that needs the gospel. I'm going to bring that gospel there. Brothers and sisters, we're going to work together to bring the gospel there. What Paul wants us to know is that God wants to be known by all these peoples. Look around you. Whatever peoples you see, know that God wants to be known by them. He wants to be known to the ends of the earth. He wants his salvation to go to those places, right? You had one job. That's it. But what then? What then? Because it's one thing to identify a need, right? But it's quite another to have the solution. So it's one thing to say, okay, they need the gospel over there, but what do we do about that? As we look out at this world, we see a vast number of unreached peoples and, and lost places, and we know that God wants to be known by them. But how's he going to do that? How is God going to accomplish his mission? You know, when I was growing up in churches, churches over in Dallas, uh, churches kind of like this one perhaps, we were always having these evangelism classes. I don't know if you've ever had a class like that, a class where uh, you, know, you talk about evangelism and you say, here's some, here's some opening lines that you can use in evangelism and here's kind of a, a gospel outline that you can memorize and here's some materials you can use and here's kind of a, a closing strategy, if you will. Let's, let's practice on each other and let's, let's go out and do that. I went to a lot of classes like that. I, I read books like that. I, and you know what didn't happen? The result of that was not me going and winning dozens and dozens of people to Christ right after taking one of those classes. Because, you know, I, I think in retrospect, I think, and there's a good place for that. I'm not, I'm not you know, dogging the evangelism class. And saying there's a place for that, but see, those classes were trying to teach me a competency. They're trying to teach me a skill. They're trying to teach me how to do something. But that actually wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't that I didn't know how to do something. Can we talk about diapers for a minute? Has anybody ever changed a diaper? I have four younger siblings. I have five children of my own. I have nieces and nephews like the sand of the seashore. I've had many divine appointments with dirty diapers. And... I don't want you to think less of me, but I'll just confess something at this time. Um, often the duty has come, and I have shirked the duty. Oftentimes I have been there. The diaper has been there. I'm aware of the problem. I know what needs to be done. I know what the right thing is to do. But excuses, right? Somebody else can do this. Somebody else is better qualified to handle this than me. Maybe if I just wait, a professional will come along. I think these kinds of things. You get where I'm going? Let's not press this too far. I'm not trying to say people are like diapers, anything like that. I'm just saying in both cases, what I lack is not competence. When it comes to diapers, I, I know how to do it. I do. But what's the issue? The issue is I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't need to go to a class. What I need is a change in my heart. I need a new attitude. I need a new perspective. And let's look back at 1347 because as we keep looking at this verse, I think we get that new perspective. We see something better. We see something more inspiring. We, we start to get at that heart change that you need and that I need as we, first of all, know God's mission but then moving backwards in the verse, we, we know God's mission. And secondly, show God's nature. 
show God's nature. Because look at the phrase right before the one we've been looking at, that middle phrase in the verse. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Now notice this verse is describing the means. How are we going to get to the goal of salvation going to the end of the earth? Well, here's the means to that goal. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Now, we've got to understand at this point, Paul didn't make this line up. This is not original Pauline language I mentioned before. He got this from Isaiah. Okay, he got this from Isaiah. Isaiah has a lot to say about gospel urgency. I think you had a sermon on Isaiah last week. Let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 49. And I want you to see this from its original place. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. So Isaiah is a prophecy, of course. It's written 700 years before Christ. And this prophecy in Isaiah 49 is about the servant of Yahweh, as many other prophecies in Isaiah are. Verse 3 says, You are my servant. And so then the question is, okay, who's the servant? Who is this servant? And he says in 49.3, he says, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And you say, okay, the servant must be Israel. But it gets a little bit more complicated because if you keep going, look at verse 5, the servant seems to have a job. And what's the job? Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. Okay, so the servant's job is to bring Israel back to God. But if the servant has a job to Israel, the servant himself can't be Israel. The servant must be, it's this idea of the one and the many, the servant must be one who's from Israel, and so in a sense is Israel, but is distinct from Israel, who will do for Israel what Israel cannot do for itself. And we keep reading, we see, okay, we know who this is. This is the Messiah. This is the one who will come from Israel. This is, this is Jesus. He says in verse 6, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. And then what does he say? He says, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. You say, that's Jesus. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus, the servant of Yahweh, did. He came as the Messiah. He came, yes, to restore Israel, but he also came to bring God's light to the nations. Jesus came to make Israel what it needed to be, and Jesus came to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus did. What's interesting, though, is that in Acts 13.47, we have this word Gentiles. But here in Isaiah 49.6, notice a different word. I will make you a light for the nations. Nations, Because that word Gentiles, it doesn't just mean non-Jews. It doesn't mean non-Jews. It means nations. It means groups of people, people of different ethnicities, people, all the different peoples and families and tribes of the world that need to hear the gospel saying this Jesus, this servant, he's going to go to all of them. It's showing us the comprehensiveness of God's mission. Again, ends of the earth is comprehensive geographically. Nations is comprehensive ethnically. Jesus is going to be the light to the nations. Now if we studied what light means in Isaiah, we don't have time to do this, we're not going to do it tonight. We could do this whole Bible study in Isaiah and say, what does Isaiah say about light? We could look at Isaiah 9, look at Isaiah 40, at Isaiah 43, at Isaiah 60, at Isaiah 66. All these passages talking about the idea of light, but I'll, I'll just skip to the punchline on that. I'll say, okay, in Isaiah, light is closely tied to the glory of God. When Isaiah is talking about light, what he's communicating is this idea 
of a, of a glorious God, a God who is supreme in His attributes, a God who is perfect in His nature, a God who is without fault, who is good, who is gracious, who is kind, who is loving. That's what the light is. The light is the holy and glorious character of God. And so when it says that this servant, the Messiah, is going to be the light to the nations, what it's saying in the context of Isaiah is that Jesus is going to be the one who will reveal Yahweh to the nations. Jesus is the one who will show the world what God is like to a world that has never heard of God, to a world that doesn't know its creator. Jesus will come into that darkness and he will reveal God, who God is and how God offers salvation to them. That's what the idea of light to the nations means. And so this is awesome. Okay, we read Isaiah and we say, okay, that's incredible. That, that's an amazing prophecy about Jesus Christ. But, but then if you think about it, it actually makes Acts 13.47 a little bit confusing. Because go back to Acts 13.47. And Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say, for so God has commanded Jesus. He says, for so the Lord has commanded us. And if you think about it, this passage doesn't really seem to be a command. It sounds more like a description. And when we read in Isaiah, it doesn't seem to be talking about us. It seems more like it's talking about Jesus. So what's going on there? It seems like, isn't Paul saying the same thing that Jesus said when he said, you are the light of the world? Who is the light of the world? Didn't Jesus say, I am the light of the world? But no, he said, you are the light of the world. Matthew 5.14 and John 20.21, he said, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He's saying, as I go back into heaven, as I ascend to the Father, I've been given this mission by God, but as I'm now going back to the Father, my people get my mission. I am giving to you the mission that I had. I was sent as the servant. I was sent as the Messiah. I was sent to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I started that task through my death and resurrection, but now I'm giving the completion of that task to you, my people. Get that, church? What it's saying is it's saying that we share in the mission of Christ. What does that mean? It means that you and that I are called, like Jesus was, to show God's nature to reveal God's character, to reveal God to all the nations of the world. We're supposed to do it like Jesus did and to do it like Paul did, first of all, by living in a certain way, living in a way that reflects a transformed heart that shows to the world grace and love and kindness and mercy, that shows the world the attributes of God as we walk in submission to the Lordship of Christ, King Jesus, right? Showing that to the world. But Jesus and Paul, as they reflected God's glory. They didn't only live a certain way, they also spoke, right? They weren't just nice guys. They, they said words with their mouths. They, they talked to people. They proclaimed truth. They declared what was true in a, in a world of their day where the fashion was all inclusiveness and polytheism and plurality. They spoke out and said, there's such a thing as darkness. There's such a thing as light. You're in the wrong one. You're in the darkness and you need to come to the light of Christ. So we have to do that. That's what we get to do as God's light to the nations. And so I think it's incredibly helpful, it's incredibly helpful in understanding our mission that in Acts 13, when you think about all of the different reasons that Paul could have given for his ministry, he could have quoted the Great Commission, he could have said, well, I was on the road to Damascus and God appeared to me and God told me to go and preach the gospel of the Gentiles, but he doesn't do any of that, right? For Paul, when they said, 
why do you preach the gospel to the Gentiles? He said, here's the number one reason why. The number one reason why is because I'm God's light. I'm called to be God's light. I'm called to share in the mission of Christ. Brothers and sisters, is that not for you an incredibly compelling reason to live and to speak with gospel urgency? To do this mission that we're called to, not just as an obligation, but as something that we do with joy? Motivation is not just, this is what good Christians do. I went to the missions conference at church and they, they told me I had to go like talk about the gospel to somebody, so let's check that one off for this week. It's not that. right? It's not that. It's that Jesus not only died for me, Jesus not only forgave my sin, Jesus not only took the, the penalty for all of my darkness so that I can have life with God, but Jesus gives me this incredible privilege of sharing in His mission. Not just because someone said so. Because we get to share the mission of Christ. You know, we have this seminary in Dubai. and Last year, one of my theological heroes, a guy named D.A. Carson, came to teach in our seminary. If you don't know who D.A. Carson is, you're, you know, congratulations, you're not a seminary nerd like some of us. But um, D.A. Carson is one of the prominent New Testament scholars of our day. He's written dozens of books and commentaries, and, and uh, he's a great scholar. He's a great, I mean, great preacher. He's just, you know, this incredible guy. And so I got to spend a little bit of time with Dr. Carson, and we had some meals, and we talked about some things, and that was, that was, that was cool. But, you know, I, you kind of have these little, like, uh, like hero fantasies, right? And so, you know, sitting with Dr. Carson, you kind of think, you know what would be really cool? What would be really cool is if he kind of like turns over here and says, hey, you know, Eric, you're, you're a, you know, a biblical student as well, aren't you? You know, I'm writing this new commentary and I'm running into some problems and I really could use some help. You want to you wanna help me with this? You want to write one of the chapters for me? Maybe we could co-author this book together and it comes out and here's the cover and it says, you know, commentary on Matthew by D.A. Carson and Eric Deller. Like, wouldn't that be cool? Um... That'd be awesome, right? That'd be an incredible privilege. Like, here's D.A. Carson, here's me. I get to write a book together with him. Wow, right? That, wow, what a privilege. Um, we'll tell you what, if you go over to the, the book center over here, you know what you're not going to find? You're not going to find that book. It doesn't exist. He, he did not ask that of me. You know what this is saying? This is saying that, that Christ does that make, make that request of you. Christ does say, Will you come? Will you do this with me? Will you share in my mission? Will you do what I am doing? Will you show God's glory to the world as I have called you to do? Our God is a saving God. Our God has always sought to make Himself known through His people. And by, by quoting and by highlighting Isaiah 49.6, what Paul is saying, he's saying, that's always been the plan. This mission that we have is not a new thing that Jesus cooked up on the mountain after the crucifixion. This is not plan B. This is Mission is something that we do because from the very moment of the fall, our saving God was working to bring sinners back to Himself and He's always purposed to use His people to represent Him in that. This mission that we have is a privileged partnership graciously given to us by our God. The way that God spreads salvation is by shining His light into His darkness through His people. The powerful effect it would have on our church in our community, if we made that shift, if we made that shift from seeing evangelism as just another job to do, 
and seeing evangelism and showing God's nature to the world as our joyful 24-7 call and responsibility and privilege. The question for us is who, is, who are you doing that to? Who are you showing God's nature to? Who doesn't understand God? Who doesn't know about God? Who are you showing God's nature to? You're not in control of the results of that, right? It's not your responsibility to save people. It's not your responsibility to make them respond in a certain way. You don't know all the ways that God is working as you show his nature to the world. Look at 1348. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the name of the, the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's what's going to happen when you go out on this mission. That you're going to be faithful. And you know who's going to believe? As many as God appointed to eternal life. See, God is spreading salvation. Saving the nations is God's job. Showing his nature is your job. In Dubai, I've got this old car, and it's always it's got a lot of problems. It's a very troubled vehicle. I think it might have a demon. But um, a while back, we've got this intern, and I, Josiah, and I said, and Josiah wanted to borrow the car to run an errand. So I said, okay, Josiah, take the car. That's fine. And so Josiah goes to the mall or wherever he goes, and he, a little while, a couple hours later, he calls me up, and he says, Eric, I got a problem with the car. I said, oh, there's a surprise. I said, what's going on today? He says, well, I got to the store. I bought what I needed. I put it in the car. I got in the car. I turned on the engine. I tried to get out of the parking space, but I can't get out. Like, what do you mean you can't get out of the parking space? He's like, well, I, the car's in park, and it won't go into drive. It won't go into neutral. It won't go into first gear, or second gear, or third gear. It's stuck in park. So something had gone wrong with the gear shift, and so the thing is stuck in park. And we tried all kinds of things. We had to get some other mechanic friend over there to help out and take the whole thing apart. And so the little shifter thing wasn't working right, whatever, I don't know about cars. But anyway, we like took, fixed the stuff. But as long as we were having this problem, we had this, we had this big car, we had this big, powerful SUV with lots of room and lots of power and a big engine and it was full of gas. But as long as it's stuck in park, it's not doing anybody any good. And see, it's so easy, right, to hear a sermon like this and, and like we heard earlier on the Great Commission and to nod one's head and to say amen, to say, hey, that's a good word, brother, and to go out and nothing changes, to be stuck in park like my car. So tonight, let's be motivated by the theology of this passage. Let's be encouraged by the missiology of this passage, but ultimately, what God has for you tonight is to be obedient to the command of this passage. And that's our final point. We already said, Number one, know God's mission. Number two, show God's character. But finally, number three, go at God's command. Because looking back at the verse, this is more than a command. It doesn't look like a normal command, but make no mistake about it, this verse is a command, and it's a command for you. Paul said, for so the Lord has commanded us. And if his reason was, again, if his reason was, because I received special revelation as an apostle to do this, we might say, okay, we're off the hook. That's a command just for Paul. We're okay over here. But because his reason for the command isn't something special to him, but because his reasoning is rooted in the very identity belonging to all believers who believe in Christ and share in his mission, we study this text and we say this command that Paul quotes from Isaiah 49.6 
is just as valid for us as it is for Paul. So you and I need to see that it's not, for so the Lord commanded Paul, for so the Lord commanded Shannon Hurley and Damon Cup and Eric Zeller, for so the Lord commanded the missionaries, for so the Lord commanded Dan Kirk and the other pastors. It's not what it says. It's for so the Lord commanded you, Christian. So the Lord commanded you. Let's go. Let's not make excuses. Let's be driven by our identity in Christ, but let's be driven by the command of the Lord. Let's experience this command as a joyful privilege. Let's see like Paul that the Lord's command for mission is an absolute, biblical, theological, non-negotiable part of our identity, and let's rejoice in that. My friend George, who lives in Dubai, he's from the Philippines. George is a very successful man. He's an executive at a hotel chain there. For most of his life, George was a lost man. But then something happened. Uh, what happened was, George's son, Jonathan, goes to one of the local schools, and some 15-year-old student at the school, whose name I don't know, befriended Jonathan, started talking to Jonathan. He, he shared the gospel uh, with this kid, Jonathan, George's son. Jonathan believed the gospel. Jonathan never heard the gospel before, but he, he believed when the gospel was shared by his fellow student at school Jonathan came home and, you know, he was excited. Jonathan started going to Bible study, started going to church. And he told his dad, he said, Dad, I just heard the most incredible thing. And he, and he shares the gospel with his dad. And George said, I want nothing to do with that. He stonewalled him. Don't talk to me about that anymore. For years, I think for five plus years, Jonathan kept coming back to his father. Dad, you've got to know this. You've got to understand this. You've got to know about Jesus. And, and George said, no, I don't want to hear it. Go away. Don't tell me that. It was pretty tense between them for a long time. Finally, God opened his heart. Finally, with, with Jonathan's persistence, Jonathan's faithfulness, George believed. Today, George is the most incredibly effective evangelist I know. George, in the church, leads a Bible study with, with 60 people in it every week. Dozens of people I know in Dubai have come to Christ through George's ministry. Look at this, it all happened because one 15-year-old was willing to open his mouth and share with another 15-year-old at school. One of my, another one of my students, a guy named Ali, he grew up in a Muslim home in Iran. As a teenager, many years ago, Ali started studying his own religion. He's a, he's a thinker. He wanted, to, he wanted to understand this Islamic faith that he'd grown up in. So he starts reading all the books and studying all the stuff, and he came to this conclusion on his own. He came to the conclusion, Islam is not true. This doesn't hold water. This doesn't make sense. He says, I, if this is what Islam is, I don't want to be a Muslim. So he told his parents, I'm not a Muslim anymore. He didn't know what else to be. He just didn't want to be a Muslim anymore. And so they said, oh, like, uh, we don't know what to do with you. Well, we better send you to school in the U.S. So they sent him to school in the U.S., came to America for graduate school. At that time, he, as, he, as he tells it, Ali was angry. He was confused. He was bitter. He says, by his own description, he says he was hostile to the other students. They would come up and try to be friendly to him, and he'd be like, you know, like, get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. But something happened. This, here's this hostile Iranian ex-Muslim, and some, some girl in his class came to him and said, hey, I'm going to Bible study at church tonight. Would you want to come with me? And for whatever reason, I don't, I don't know why. He doesn't know why. He said yes. Well, he went to the Bible study that night. He heard the gospel that night. He said, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I've been, this is what I've been trying to find. This is the message that I need. That was 20 years ago. Since then, Ali's been training house church leaders in Iran. 
Ali runs the biggest Farsi language Christian website that there is, and he's come to our seminary because he wants to know how he can be trained to train church leaders better and more faithfully. What I'm saying is that salvation spreads through teenagers who share the gospel at school. Salvation spreads through graduate students who are willing to approach another graduate student and invite somebody to Bible study. Salvation spreads through retirees who share Christ at the bridge game. Salvation spreads at work. Salvation spreads at baseball practice. Salvation spreads at the rescue mission and the crisis pregnancy center. Salvation spreads at Starbucks. Salvation spreads on your street. Brothers and sisters, let's go. Let's go to the close ones. Let's go to our, our own home, as Shannon said. Let's go to the, the best friends and the siblings and the next door neighbors. Let's go to, to the hard ones. Let's go to immigrants, to people who don't speak our language very well, to people of a different socioeconomic category, to people of other religions, to people of other political parties. Let's go to the world. Let's send missionaries. Let's Maybe some of you are those that should go to Uganda one day or to Dubai with us. Let's go. It's so hard to get started. It's hard to take time out of a schedule full of good things. It's hard to befriend people with different values. It's hard to walk across the street. But let's go with God's command. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this command to go. May we be found faithful to this command. May you work in our hearts and change our motivations. May we not just encounter this message in this conference as another duty being imposed upon us on a long list of other things. But may we, as we behold the face of Christ in the Gospel, may we so glory in our own forgiveness in our own salvation, may we be so transformed into your character and your nature that it's so natural and so happy and so joyful for us to reflect you to those around us in our deeds and in our words. Father, may we go, may we stop making excuses, may we get out there at your command, may you work mightily in this church, in this community, through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.